the next three weeks, we will be in John chapter 9. And you can uh, think of this again as a bit of a three-part series in John chapter 9. We will be dividing up John chapter 9 into three parts from verses 1 to 12 today and then from verses 13 to Uh, 34 next week and then finishing with verses 35 to 41 but we will be borrowing from the various um, areas because uh, John chapter 9 certainly should be taken as a whole within the whole of John's gospel and the way that we'll break it down is sort of like the first part is looking at the main point and looking at all of the background that lies behind this event and this sign. This is one of the uh, seven main signs that John records in the Gospel of John. So this week we'll be looking at the main point, which is largely how the spiritually blind, which is everyone, receive their sight, how they are born again, how they are brought from darkness to light, from blindness to sight. That's the first part. The second part will then be looking at the blindness of the Pharisees, which is going to be a bit of a warning. So the first part is the overarching theme. The second part next week will be a warning, which is uh, similar to what Tobias preached on, not to be like a Pharisee. The warning here is to beware of the blindness of the Pharisees. And then the third part will be the response, which, as Jesus says here, is that you must become blind so that you might see. So that will be more of the application of how we respond to this. So the first part today is looking at the overarching theme, how the spiritually blind receive their sight, how this man, this story uh, becomes a beautiful picture of everything else that Jesus has been talking about through John's gospel. So let me read just the first 12 verses again, and then uh, we will jump in. From verse 1 of chapter 9, this is God's word. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. This is God's word. So a reminder that we've just come out of the Feast of Tabernacles. That's in chapter seven to eight. And two bold proclamations came from that where Jesus said, uh, firstly, in chapter seven, verse 37, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. As the scriptures have said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. And then he says in chapter eight, I am the light of the world. 
Anyone who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that bold proclamation of Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, should still be in the forefront of our minds as we come to this passage here in chapter 9, given that it immediately uh, follows Jesus' proclamation of being the light of the world. And remember that John, as he says in chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, John is very particular about the signs that he records. Jesus did many other signs among his disciples, but John says these are written, these ones here that are in the gospel account are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. So we will see that this sign here of the man who was born blind being healed, this sign is pointing far beyond Jesus' ability to simply physically heal, but rather it is pointing to God's redemptive purposes where he will give sight to the spiritually blind, where he will awaken people to the glory of God as we see it in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, the first question that we come across here in our passage is the age-old question of why uh, suffering happens effectively. Why is someone born with a debilitating impairment like blindness? So look at the passage here from verse 2. The disciples ask Jesus as they come across this man born blind. They say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This was a natural assumption in Israel and... We can understand why, because we know that, of course, ultimately all suffering is as a result of sin in terms of the fallen state of the world. That's why we suffer. There won't be any suffering in heaven because the presence and the effects of sin are gone. So there is, of course, a a natural understanding that suffering comes from sin. But here they are assuming that someone's severe impairment or disability is a result of a particular sin. And even a lot of Jews at the time thought that a baby could sin in the womb. Remember Jacob wrestling with Esau in the womb. They, they thought that a baby could indeed uh, sin in a particular way that would then result, have repercussions later on in their life. Now, without going into too much of the details, I just want to draw your attention to two very important points that are very clear from Scripture. The first is that there is no blanket rule either way as to why someone has a particular condition, illness, or sickness. There's, of course, no blanket rule. So we can't look at every blind person and say, well, this is because they did that. Nor can we say that it isn't because of sin. For we have examples of both in Scripture. Think of the... uh, adultery and uh, the murder of David and when he uh, slept with Bathsheba and what happened? Well, the effects of that sin did affect the child because God ended up killing their child. So we do have the effects of sin on children, but we also have passages like Ezekiel 18, if you ever read through that, where it's very clear to say, if there is a wicked father and then the son sees the father's wickedness and turns away from that to live righteous, then the, the righteous son will not be punished for the father's wickedness. Each person will be judged according to what they have done. So all that to say, there is, of course, no blanket rule. We have examples where sin, uh, the repercussions of sin do affect descendants. And then we, of course, have examples where that is absolutely not the case. 
So there is no blanket rule. The second and perhaps uh, more important point, because it seems to be ignored so often, is that God is sovereign over every single disability and bit of suffering that anyone will ever have in this life. God is sovereign over those who are blind. God is sovereign over those who are deaf or who have other impairments. When God uh, is speaking to Moses in Exodus in chapter 4, and Moses is complaining that he's not eloquent in speech, and God's response to him is to say, Who made man's mouth? I'm the one who makes man mute or deaf or blind. That's me. I form them in the womb. I know exactly when someone's going to have a disability. God is completely sovereign over every condition and circumstance in life. Now, here's why this ought to be tremendously comforting for us. It is very discomforting and uncomfortable to think that God couldn't be sovereign over that, for that would imply that there are things outside of his control. There are accidents going on that God is not sovereign over. But the wonderful comfort for us is that this tells us there is no condition or circumstance in this life that is accidental. None at all. Every single event God is totally in control of. So the child born with a severe disability is not accidental. That child is born in that exact condition for the glory of God, as we will see. Perhaps it will be that God will be glorified in the merciful healing of that child, or perhaps God will be glorified in that child with the debilitating illness or sickness, whatever it is, and that child growing to be a faithful follower of Jesus and being absolutely content in the Lord in a world where everyone else would look at their condition and say, why aren't you bitter about your circumstances? And how God is glorified when people in suffering are content in the Lord, where they do not, like Job's wife, curse God and die. Rather, they say, uh, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And what is absolutely certain for all followers of Jesus, whether we are uh, quote-unquote disabled or quote-unquote able-bodied, the reality is we're all affected by the presence of and effects of sin. But what is most certain is that God will be absolutely glorified in that person's life when that follower of Jesus with the debilitating illness, with whatever condition they have, when they walk into the gates of heaven, so to speak, and they have their glorified bodies on made after the likeness of Jesus Christ, and they enter into the joy of their master and that child who never had any legs or that child who was never able to do something ends up having a glorified body just like you and me and enters into the joy of their master and God is absolutely glorified in that. So when it comes to affliction and suffering, there are no accidents in God's economy, but all are created so that the works of God can be displayed in us in whatever and whenever God is pleased to do. Perhaps it will be in the very end. Perhaps it will be in this life. But what we know for sure is that God is sovereign over it. And in some beautiful and mysterious way, he will be glorified in that. And that is why we can take great 
hope. Nothing is an accident. Jesus makes this clear in verse three when he responds to the disciples' misguided assumption that this man was born blind because of sin. And so he says in verse three, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, here's just another very helpful application for us as we come across this here, a very helpful application that would relieve so much of our anxiety and bitterness whenever we find ourselves in circumstances uh, that are incredibly difficult, whether it be a job loss, uh, very difficult financial circumstances, uh, broken relationships, debilitating sickness, whatever it may be, the, often our response is to have some question like, why is this happening? We naturally compare ourselves to others and we say, why is this happening to me? And of course, that's, that's the wrong question. This simply leads us to self-pity and bitterness. What we ought to be asking is always, how might the works of God be displayed in this? How might God be glorified in my grueling circumstances? What exactly is it that God, who is totally sovereign over this circumstance, is teaching me and wanting to reveal in this situation? How liberating that is to have that mindset rather than asking, why is this suffering happening to me? But rather, how might God be glorified in this? And this is what Jesus does here to the disciples. He shifts their perspective. He says, the issue of why this has happened is not the question. That's not the right question. The question is, how might the works of God be displayed? And here is where we see the significance of this particular man born blind. This man becomes a tangible picture of a huge theme throughout John's gospel. This blind man comes along so that Jesus might display the works of God in him. And the works of God here are centered on what Jesus has come to do in his earthly ministry, which is not primarily to physically heal people. That's not why Jesus has come. Though Jesus will physically heal, the physical healing is pointing to something greater. So it is today. The main point of the mission of God or the mission of the church in the world is not, of course, to physically heal people. That may happen in God's economy, and it's wonderful when it does, but that's not the main point. So although Jesus most certainly does physically heal, the physically healing is, of course, pointing to something. It's pointing to the works of God. So when Jesus here speaks of the works of God in verses 4 and 5, notice he says, We must work while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. But while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, we know it's, of course, not that the work of God ceases after Jesus leaves the disciples. God is continuing to work now. But what is happening here is we are being zoomed in on the specific work that Jesus is doing, is accomplishing in his earthly ministry. And we are being zoomed in on the very magnitude of the fact that at this point in time, as Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world, that's God who is light in the flesh, walking on this earth walking amongst his very own people at this point in history, as Jesus is saying this, he is working as God in the flesh. And we're being zoomed in on this now, the very works that Jesus is doing in his earthly ministry. And while Jesus is here on earth performing these signs, the intended result of these signs is to have people believing in him. 
to have people trusting in him. That's the point of John's gospel. Remember John 20 verses 30 and 31 that I read out earlier. The signs are written so that we may believe. So the point is that we may believe. This is the fruit that is meant to come from the works of God. This is what's meant to come as we read this passage today, that we are meant to trust in Jesus. So remember John chapter 6 in verses 28 to 29, when uh, the followers come to Jesus and they say, what works must we be doing to be doing the works of God? And what does Jesus say? He says, here's the works of God. Believe in me. Believe in me as the one whom the Father has sent. That's the work of God. So this blind man who is healed here, he becomes a, a tangible picture of the work of God. I believe it is a tangible picture of actually what happens when we believe in God. It is like being brought from darkness to light. It is like being blind and then now we see. So let's look at this story here and how this man healed of his blindness from birth to then see becomes this beautiful picture of what Jesus has already been talking about through the gospel of John, namely his purpose in coming into the world to bring people out of darkness into his marvelous light, to bring people out of a life of uh, living in blindness to finally see his beauty and majesty. So after Jesus explains that he is here to work the works of God, in verse 6, we read that Jesus spits on the ground he makes mud with the saliva. He anoints the man's eyes with the mud. And then he says to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. Now, this is obviously a miracle. It's incredible. This man born blind can now see. It happens in an instant. Like the man will say in verse 32, he himself says, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And it's such a miracle that there's confusion over this man's identity. Notice what we read in verses 8 to 10. There's all of this confusion. Some people uh, believe that it is the man. And of course, this man would have been known by a lot of the people around there. Some people think that it's the man. Others are so astounded, so unwilling to accept that a miracle has happened. And they say, this just looks like him. This couldn't be the man. This, this has to be someone else. And they simply cannot believe that this has happened. So they ask the man in verse 11, how did this happen? And here is just the beautiful response. The beautiful, simple response of how this happened. The man says, well, the man Jesus came. He made mud, he anointed my eyes, he said to me, go wash in the pool of Siloam. I went, I washed, and I received my sight. That's how it happened. The man Jesus stumbled across me. In fact, he sought me out. That's what we see in this passage here. I went, I washed, and I received my sight. Literally, I looked up, and that'll be important as we study later on. I went, I washed, and I looked up. Now I see. Now, there's a lot of background to this story that helps us to see with greater clarity. So I want to just make sure we have the background of this story as we work our way through it over the next three weeks. So think of all the illusions that we have already had in John's gospel 
of these kinds of themes, of being brought out of darkness to light, of, of blindness to sight. Remember chapter 1, verse 4, John says, In him, that is in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. And then verse 9 of chapter 1, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. There's this picture of darkness in the world, and then this great light comes in as Jesus enters into the world. Jesus in chapter 8 has just declared, I am the light of the world. You're all in darkness. If anyone wants to see, come to me because I am light. Even think of all of the Old Testament allusions. Just a few. Remember Isaiah 6. Remember the um, ominous uh, commission that God gives to Isaiah. It's certainly not the commission that most pastors want to have, where God says to Isaiah, you're going to go preaching to these people and and you're going to actually blind the eyes of the people lest they see with their eyes. So he says uh, they will be ever seeing and not able to perceive, ever hearing, not able to understand. So actually, it's, it's a judgment upon God's people that they will be blind. And then in Isaiah 61, we have this messianic passage where there's this promised Messiah. And what is the promised Messiah going to do? He's going to recover the sight of the blind. That's what's going to happen. So God's people need to understand that they're in darkness, that they are blinded, and God's word is actually going to blind them even more until the coming of the Messiah who comes to recover the sight of the blind, who comes to illuminate people to what is true and what is good. And all of this background just amplifies this picture, this overarching picture that we, that everyone, all of humanity, who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we are spiritually blind to the things of God and nothing other than God himself, no one other than God himself can enlighten us to our own sin and his glory. He must recover our sight. And this is what Jesus has already made clear to us in John chapter 3. Remember John chapter 3 where Jesus talks to Nicodemus about the need to be born again, the need to be born from above. And it is a picture of being in darkness coming to light. So Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, unless you are born again, that is, unless the supernatural event where you trust in Jesus Christ and it becomes evidence that you have been born from above, unless that happens, you can't see anything. You're blind. You can't see anything about the kingdom of God. And I believe this event here of the man being born Uh, blind and being brought to sight is this tangible picture of what Jesus has been talking about, particularly in John chapter 3 of this new birth. Notice the similarities of this story that we have in chapter 9 of what Jesus talks about to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Let me mention just four similarities. The first is that something miraculous must happen for anyone to see the kingdom. This is very clearly what Jesus teaches Nicodemus. He says, unless you are born from above, unless a miracle happens, you can't see anything. You can't see anything about the kingdom of God. Likewise, this blind man must have a miracle for him to see. He's in blindness. He can't see anything. A miracle must happen for him to see the king. Secondly, we see vagueness of the cause, but clarity in the effect. In the effect. So you know how we talk about cause and effect. There's always, uh, for every effect, there's a cause. In the new birth, there is vagueness in the cause. So Jesus teaches Nicodemus that the new birth is like wind. 
So he says, wind, no one knows where it's come from. No one knows where it's going. But of course, what is undeniable when you see a tree blowing about is that it's windy. There's vagueness in the cause. And he says it's like that with the new birth. No one can pinpoint the Spirit's work in someone's life. But what is clear is that something miraculous has happened. Their heart, the heart of stone has been taken out. The heart of flesh has been put in. Now they have a heart that beats for the Lord, that is ravished by Christ. No one knows exactly what has happened. But the, so there's vagueness in the cause, but there is clarity in the effect. That's the teaching of the new birth. So it is in this story. There's vagueness with what has happened. We see this all throughout it. No one knows exactly what's going on. Even the man himself says in verse 12, when they ask, where's Jesus? He says, I don't know. It's like this picture of, I don't really know what happened. And the man's conclusion is, I'm really not sure what's going on. But one thing I know, I was blind. Now I see. Clarity in the effect, vagueness in the cause. Number three, this is hidden from the religious elite. We see this, I think one of the amusing things uh, of Jesus talking with Nicodemus, and it's interesting that Nicodemus comes by night in this picture of darkness there as well. And as Nicodemus is talking to Jesus, he doesn't know anything about the new birth. And Jesus says to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Nicodemus is part of the religious elite. He's the teacher of Israel. And Jesus is saying, how do you not understand these things? You're part of the religious elite and you don't understand this. And we see the same thing with the Pharisees. And we'll see this more next week. They have no idea what's happening. There's great irony in them saying to the man, give glory to God. Say that Jesus didn't do this. Give glory to God. There's just great irony and they have no idea what's going on. The people have no idea what's going on. And the blind man says a similar thing, just as Jesus says to Nicodemus in a bit of an ironic way of, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? In verse 30, the man with, in quite a cheeky way, says, well, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from and yet he opened my eyes. You have no idea what's going on, do you? That's effectively what he's saying. And fourthly, the blind must look up and see the Son of Man lifted up. So Jesus tells Nicodemus, right after teaching on the new birth, he says, here's what must happen. Just as the snake in the wilderness was lifted up, remember the Israelites had to look upon the snake in order to be healed because God had sent a plague of snakes upon them. And Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that healing may come so that whoever believes in me may have eternal life. So the link is those who are born from above. It will be like them looking up and looking at the son of man and receiving eternal life. Now, what is it that the blind man says in verse 11? The man Jesus made mud. He anointed my eyes and he said, go to Siloam and wash I went, I washed, and I received my sight. And again, that word for receive my sight is just one word that literally means to look up. To look up. That's what happened. It is a similar picture of being brought to life and then looking up and seeing the Son of Man. And we will see that literally happen in verse 37, where Jesus comes to him after he's cast out of the synagogue. And the Son of Man is right there. Jesus says, you're looking at him. You've looked upon the Son of Man. 
It's this beautiful picture of healing that comes as we are brought to life and we see the Son of Man. We see Jesus in all of his majesty and glory. See, this is a a tangible picture of what Jesus has described must happen for us to come to him. We must be born from above. It, It will be like lights coming on out of a pitch black room of darkness. As Peter says, we who are brought out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the picture of salvation. This is what happens to this man. He is brought out of darkness and it is through no merit or means of his own. It is by the sheer mercy of Jesus who comes upon him and he receives sight. He looks up and he sees the son of man. Now, what about the way in which Jesus gives sight to this man? Why make mud and then tell him to wash in the pool of Siloam? Now, there are many theories on this. And here I want to be clear to say that we're in the realm of subjective interpretation, which isn't a bad thing. But some things in Scripture, it is clear of what the sign is pointing to, of of what uh, has happened. And particularly in the Gospels, Jesus then teaches on it. The idea of Jesus spitting and making mud is something that is never explained in Scripture. So I want to be clear to say uh, there are some things that are clear. There are others that we can put into the box of this is an interpretation. And I still think we can be greatly edified by this. So some people see the way Jesus uh, spits and makes mud as an allusion to the way God made the first man, where he made man out of the dust. And we know there are themes of the new creation all throughout John's gospel. So perhaps there is this element of a new creation. Uh, Some believe that this was a common healing method. I personally don't believe that that has any credit because in uh, Judaism, before the time of Jesus, there was no evidence of this happening. It was more of a Greco-Roman thing to use spit or saliva as healing. I believe that we are greatly helped in our interpretation of this when we understand how this act of spitting was seen in a Jewish context. And for Jews, spit which is still the case now. It's not really that pleasant to see someone spitting. Spit was always connected with shame and disgrace. Always. In Deuteronomy 25, there are instructions of if a husband dies and they have no children, the widow um, ought to go to the deceased husband's brother and the brother is supposed to then take the woman so that Uh, the deceased husband's line can continue on. He's supposed to provide children for that woman. And what would happen if that woman, uh, sorry, if that man said, no, it's a bit too weird for me, I'm not going to do it, would be that the uh, widow would then go up to the man in front of the elders. She would take the sandal off his foot and she would spit in his face. That's what would happen because it was a shameful thing to not carry on the family line. It's a shameful thing. So the woman was actually given the right to disgrace the man, to shame him. Or we think of Numbers 12, 
Numbers 12, God gives this example um, where Miriam is rebelling against Moses and she gets leprosy. And Moses is actually pleading on behalf of Miriam saying, you know, protect her. And God actually gives this example. He's basically saying, in effect, she's almost beyond protection. And the description God gives is to say, even if Miriam's father spat in her face, should she not be shamed for seven days? That's the example that God gives. If Miriam was, had her father spit in her face, the logical thing is that she should be shamed for seven days because that's a disgraceful thing to happen. So this idea of, of uh, spitting, and it's interesting that there are three times in the New Testament, the other two are in Mark where Jesus spits, it's all connected with healing. It always carries shameful connotations. And it would have certainly seemed shocking to see that Jesus would spit in the dirt, make mud full of his saliva and dirt and rub it all over the person's face. And here is part of the point. Something shocking and even disgraceful must happen for us to be born again and to see. There must be an element of disgrace. The disgrace would, of course, be where the promised Messiah would suffer a disgraceful death on a Roman cross. He would suffer rejection and humiliation from his own people. This would be shocking. The disgrace, whereas we see toward the end of the gospel accounts, Jesus himself as God in the flesh, as our savior is actually spat upon in his face. He is disgraced by the Roman soldiers. And this was simply shocking to the Jews, especially to the disciples. And here is where we can get some help from the other gospel accounts. In Mark's account, which are the other two accounts of Jesus spitting and making healing, in Mark chapter 8, we have Jesus revealing to the disciples. Remember this after Peter's confession and Jesus reveals to the disciples that he's going to have to suffer. He's going to have to be rejected by the Jews and he's going to be crucified. He's going to be killed. And remember what Peter's response? Peter actually rebuked Jesus. Peter rebuked God. He said, no way. This, this can never happen to you, not to you, because the idea of a Messiah being killed was disgraceful. And so Peter says, no way. That, that's never going to happen to you. And what is fascinating, and this is just incredible, is that in Mark's account of this, where Jesus, and in Mark's account of a different healing, Jesus spits directly into the eyes of the man. And in Mark's account, immediately before Jesus reveals the disgrace he must endure, we have the account of Jesus spitting in a man's face and healing him. Immediately before Jesus reveals the shocking news that he is going to have to die and be rejected. It is indeed a shocking thing to have a Messiah bring about the healing of a spiritually blind people by suffering, by suffering such disgrace, the disgrace that was foretold in Isaiah 53, that famous passage where we read, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, which is to say the things that this Messiah was going to go through would make everyone seem that he was cursed by God. He would suffer so much that we would think he was afflicted. He was cursed by God, but... He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, 
we are healed. This is the disgraceful nature of the cross. Through his disgrace, our disgrace is then washed away. So the picture we have is of this blind man receiving sight through something that was just shocking and even disgraceful to spit upon someone is a disgrace. And the picture that we get as we look at the cross of Christ is, of course, that through one man's disgrace, the disgrace and shame of our sin, which we must be confronted by, would be washed away. That is the beautiful picture of the gospel through the suffering of the suffering servant, our disgrace and shame would be washed away. And we have this picture of washing in Jesus's instructions to the man to wash in the pool of Siloam. And I'll just briefly uh, go over this in the pool of Siloam. Another very rare uh, word in the Bible, it's only used a couple of times. The pool of Siloam is actually only used in John's gospel. And even in the Old Testament, the the Hebrew word for Siloam is Shiloah. And we only have one use of the the pool of of Shiloah or the waters of Shiloah in the Old Testament. We have it again in Isaiah. In Isaiah 8, uh, we have this reference to the waters of Shiloah. And again, what is fascinating, this is just a helpful biblical uh, theology for us, is that where God talks of the waters of Shiloh in Isaiah 8, it is sandwiched between these prophecies of the coming Messiah. So in Isaiah chapter 7, 14, we have the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. It's, of course, talking about God being with us through the virgin birth. And then in Isaiah chapter 9, we have the famous passage comes out at Christmas time. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. His name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's a peace. It's talking about God being with us. And in between these two is this rebuke from God to his people Israel, where he says in chapter 8, verse 6 of Isaiah, This people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently. He says they've refused the waters of Shiloh or the waters of Siloam. Therefore, the Lord is bringing upon them the waters of the river to sweep away Judah. So he's saying they've refused the waters of Siloam that I'm giving them. And now I'm going to sweep them away. Israel had refused the gentle waters that God was giving. And likewise, at this time, we see the very same thing here in this passage where the Jews of the time refused to come to him. Jesus gives their proclamation, come to me, all you who are thirsty and drink. Drink from me. And what do we consistently see? We see the religious leaders, those who are the closest to scripture, rejecting the waters that Jesus is offering, rejecting the water that God has offered. And the picture that we see is that as the Pharisees refuse to accept the cleansing that Jesus offers, this helpless blind man, this helpless blind man, he receives the washing which the Jews continue to reject. This is a beautiful picture of the redeeming work of Christ and of the judgment upon those who pridefully resist God. The beautiful picture is those who are blind now see. Those like you and me who are in the disgrace of their sin through another man's disgrace are cleansed and washed and made clean. 
And all of this is the completely undeserved work of God by His Spirit through Christ. So just as we finish, come back to uh, the people's question to the man in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 9. The people ask, how were your eyes opened? And, and the blind man can lay no claim of merit. He, he can uh, lay no claim of anything that he has done. He simply says, well, the man Jesus made mud. He anointed my eyes, told me to wash. I did it. And now I see. Now I see. And so it is with us when we hear the question, when we have the question, how is it that you are saved? How is it that you are a Christian? And of course, it's not because we know a lot of things about the Bible. It's not because we understand all of the beautiful, rich doctrines of Scripture, as important as that is, And we ought to be immersing ourselves deeper in our understanding of these doctrines of our faith. But when we have the question, how is it that you are saved? How is it that you are a Christian? It's, of course, not because we understand the hypostatic union or particular eschatological positions. That's not the case, as important as that is. Here is the beautiful simplicity of our salvation. When we are asked that question... Our ultimate answer in the very foundation of our faith is very similar to this man's response. Our answer is the man Jesus. He came, he covered me. He washed me. He washed me by his blood. I heard him, he opened my eyes, and now I see. There may be a lot of things that we do not understand about the Christian life. We may know very little, but one thing that we ought to know, the most simple things, is we must know that we were blind, but by Christ we see. We were in darkness, but through his atoning work, we have been brought into marvelous light. And that is the beautiful declaration that we can all give, the very foundation of our hope that really grounds out Uh, and, and weans away any intellectual superiority. Our claim is the man Jesus came. He died on a Roman cross. He suffered disgrace. He washed us clean, and now we see. Now we have life. Now we follow that suffering servant. That is how we are saved.